Church family, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 13. It's a joy to continue in this Upper Room series with you today. And in John 13, verse 31, is where we will find ourselves beginning today. And as you turn there, I have a question for you. Some of you I already think I know this answer for, as I've gotten to know some of you and heard your stories. I want to know this, though. What would you say are your glory days? What have been, what are right now, what are your glory days? Where would you say, this is where I shine? Tell somebody next to you right now. What, what were your glory days? What are your glory days? I'm a little afraid that it's pretty quiet in the room. I'm not sure what that says about our church family. We haven't enjoyed any moment of being alive. I hope that's not true. I'm already offending Millie, so we're off to a great start. Um, what are your glory days? Where were you at your best? For some people, that might feel like it was an athletic achievement, that one play, right? I, I kind of felt proud for my Cleveland Guardians yesterday with a walk-off home run in the 15th inning that I'll send them to the next round of the playoffs. Right? Like, that feels like glory to the Cleveland Guardians, right? Like, this is good. Maybe for you it was a significant project or achievement at work or in your education or a relationship that uh, has really blossomed into something beautiful. What we see as our, like, us at our best, right? Like, what we think of when we think of ourselves at our best, that reveals a lot about what we think really matters, doesn't it? Reveals a lot about what is most significant to us. And as I say that, some of you are thinking, oh, no, I shouldn't have thought about that double play I turned. <laughs> That's not really significant. Why do I think of that as me at my best? Or shouldn't have been thinking about the, the biggest income year I ever achieved. Why? Why? And for good reason, we should pause as we think about what we value most. Today, we get to see Jesus share, I believe, what he saw as him at his best. We will get to see Jesus glorified. And remember, we are in the upper room. We're in the upper room, and Jesus has gathered his closest followers with him and to observe a holiday meal, the Passover, together. And they're sharing this meal, and in this moment, in these few hours, Jesus is going to institute the Lord's Supper that we just observed. Now, 2,000 years later, found its start right here in this upper room, and Jesus washed his disciples' feet, calling them to follow his example of servant-heartedness. And here is where Jesus identifies, like we learned just a few weeks ago, that Judas was going to be his betrayer and sent him out on that mission. It's just a few hours later that Jesus will be arrested and then tried and then crucified. The upper room. It's a significant moment. And having his betrayal in motion, Jesus begins in this passage today to tell the remaining disciples a profound reality. So let's read together John 13, starting in verse 31. Speaking of Judas being sent out 
to begin his mission to betray Jesus, it says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Right, so since we all understand that, we'll move on. If you understand that at first blush, you ought to come up here and just take over. As I was wrestling through this week, looking at this passage, man, this is weighty. And it's confusing. And he uses the word glorify so many times. You know it's significant. But what is it that God is getting after here when Jesus says this? I believe ultimately it communicates the first of three things we'll see in the upper room today. The first is this, that the glory of the Godhead is revealed on the cross. The glory of the Godhead is revealed at the cross. Jesus starts off by referring to himself as the Son of Man. Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. And the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title to use to refer to himself. Jesus often talked about himself in the third person, referring to what his mission was to become. What he was in the business of doing. He would say, the Son of Man is doing this. Or it's not time for the Son of Man to begin that. Jesus loved to refer to himself as the Son of Man. He used it over 80 times. And it doesn't just mean he is the male child of a human. It's got a significant aura about it. It's a messianic title that the Jews understood to refer to their Messiah as promised in the book of Daniel, where Daniel had a vision. And it said that there was one like a son of man sitting beside the throne, and to him was going to be given power and dominion and a kingdom that would last forever. And the way Jesus uses it is he borrows this messianic title, the son of man, that the Jews understood to mean something huge, and he uses it in lots of mundane and menial places. For Jesus, the Son of Man, ends up coming across with a sense of being a mighty Messiah that is also a humble Savior. So Jesus says the Son of Man, this messianic yet humble figure, is going to be glorified. And God will be glorified in him. We see here this Trinitarian relationship that Jesus enjoys with God the Father and God the Son. And we don't see him present here, but we know also with God the Holy Spirit. The Father is glorified by the Son, Jesus, and Jesus the Son is glorified by the Father. The Godhead here has this reciprocal relationship, keeping unity and honor together into glory to each other. As Jesus obeys to give glory to the Father, who responds to the Son's gift of glory by in turn giving glory to the Son, glorifying the Son in his own greatness. Maybe we should slow down for a second to define what glory here really is, right? Glory is that, that nature of when something is revealed to be worthy, where something is seen to be of great value. It's seeing something for what it truly is. That's what glory is. Seeing something for what it truly is. 
That's why we understand that sense of like, where is it where you shine? Where, are, where is your moment of glory? We reflect on our own lives in small little hints of this. That chance to tell your favorite story one more time. Right? Like, ah, oh, some of you guys are storytellers. You're like, this, I'm in my glory when I can trap three or four people and tell them this moment in my life once more. Right? Like, this is me at my best. I love doing that. For some of you, it's holding your grandchild, right? You just feel like, man, I am never more fulfilled, more in tune with what matters in life than when I'm holding my grandbaby. Well, as you might expect, God's glory supersedes even our own fleeting hints at it. The glory of God is the outward display of his singular holy nature. And so to glorify God, is to show off the essence, to, to showcase who he really is, to have the veil of our distraction or misunderstandings torn away so that he is seen for who he really and truly is. That's when God is glorified. That's how God is glorified. So how is God, the Son and God the Father, being glorified here together in this moment? How is it that right now, God's glory is on display. Uh, the context gives us the clues we need here. Because right at the beginning of this verse, it sets it up. Judas had just left to go betray Jesus. And so Jesus then turns and says, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified. Everything's beginning to be undone. I'm about to get sold out the process is in play where I'm going to be crucified. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And this two-sentence glorification moment ends by saying, God is going to glorify Jesus in himself in his own glory, and he's going to glorify him at once. There's this sense that right away, in one fell swoop, as Judas is going to begin the betrayal, Jesus is going to be glorified. And that's going to give glory to God. The die had been cast. And Jesus is in the process of going to the resurrection through the execution. It's in this sacrificial redemption that the glory of God is seen. I want to be clear about that. It's in this sacrificial redemption that the glory of God is being seen. The redemption and the resurrection of Jesus evidently are the uniquely best opportunities we have in our world history to experience the glory of God. Jesus is saying, you're about to see me suffer and die. But in that, God will be glorified and he'll glorify me in response. Now, if you and I write this story, we probably write it a different way. We think Jesus' glory is revealed when he wins, right? Like when, when he feeds the 5,000, when he brings Lazarus back to life, that's glory. And Jesus says, glory is seen especially at the cross. Because the cross shows off some of the greatest aspects of who God is, of his character. It showcases his justice. Because sin had to be atoned for, and God was. 
It showcases God's faithfulness to his promises of head crushing of the serpent and Messiah sending to his people and world blessing through his people and more. It showcases his powerful sovereignty, working all things so that the curse brought about by the first Adam would be reversed by the greater second Adam. Showcases God's self-giving love to be our redemption himself. I mean, the glory of God is revealed supremely at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the first thing we see in this moment. And then Jesus continues. He says, little children, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. He uses this caring phrase as he sets up a reality that he's going to be gone. And it's interesting We see this phrase, little children, nowhere else in the Gospels. We never have a recorded moment where Jesus uses this phrase except right here. And the author of this book, John, takes this phrase. And the only other place we see it in Scripture, in the New Testament, is in his epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And John uses it all over the place. That's his preferred term to address the people he's writing to. Little children, little children, little children. John says over and over and over again. And it's almost like John laying right next to Jesus, having leaned in close to Jesus and said, Jesus, you, you say someone's going to betray you? Who, who's going to do that? And Jesus says, maybe even in a whisper to John, because none of the other disciples seem to pick up on the fact that it's going to be Judas, he, he says to John, the, the guy I'm going to dip my bread and share it with, that's the one who's going to betray me. And then John watches as Jesus dips the bread in the dish and then hands it to Judas and then says to Judas, go do what you're going to do. And then Judas leaves. And John's mind is a wreck. He's like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait, wait a second. This guy, we've journeyed with this guy. He's a part of the family. And yet he's going to betray you? And as he's trying to think that through, and as he's envisioning all of this playing out so badly, Jesus then turns and says, right now, I am glorified and seen for all the best of who I am. And, and this like profound shock, I think, riddles through John's mind, and it like sends a spike through the rest of his life where the words that Jesus uses and the topics Jesus talks about in the next five minutes and three hours are all that John continues to talk about for the rest of his life. As we look at John's writings, it's just littered through everything that John says is what Jesus says right now. The language Jesus uses here sears who John is, shapes who he becomes. Jesus says, little children, you know, a little while I'm with you and you will seek me just as I said to the Jews, though now I say also to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. He shares once again that he is going to go away. And like a caring parent, he tells them, I, I, you're not going to be with, able to come with me. You're not able to come, perhaps he means to the cross with me. You can't be that substitutionary sacrifice. Ultimately, of course, it means you can't come with me to glory right now. It's not your time yet. Like a caring parent, like a caring friend, 
He warns them and prepares them to thrive after he's no longer going to be physically living with them. And so the question then arises, right? Like, Jesus, all along, we've been able to kind of define who we are as your disciples by following you. That's maybe the only consistent theme. You can't say by doing a good job of following you, because we sure haven't done that. And you can't say we, we're defined by being your followers because we've always believed in you, because that's definitely not true. You can't say we did a good job of identifying ourselves by, as your disciples because we've done powerful things for your name, because we haven't even done that with any consistency. The only thing that's consistently defined Jesus' disciples as being Jesus' disciples is that they were standing around next to him. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away. I won't be with you anymore, and you can't follow me. And so the disciples are like, got to be thinking, how do we even do this disciple thing anymore? And you know it's what they were thinking, because in the intervening days between when Jesus was crucified, and then even after he showcased that he was alive again, they all just kind of stay in a room together. Right, like they're lemmings lost in the world. Lock the door, nobody go anywhere. Maybe we'll survive if we don't do anything. Bury the treasure. We know the master it has high expectations. Jesus gives them, though, a directive to drive how they ought to operate when he's gone. Verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you. New commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, a new command I give you, that you love one another. Now, if you've been around God's word for a very long time, you might think to yourself, wait a second. This doesn't seem like all that new of a command. And you're right, it's not all that new of a command. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the book of the law, in Leviticus chapter 19, we see the law say, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus knew it was there. He quotes it. When he talks about the first and the second greatest commandment, he says, the Lord your God is one, and you should love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And also, here's the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So what's it mean when Jesus says this is a new commandment? I think it's best for us to understand this way. The command is not novel, as in the first time it's ever been said, it's enriched. It's not novel, it's enriched. The word new, really in the Greek, has two possible terms that could be used. You could have, Jesus could have used the word neos, which is very much connected to sequence and chronology of time, like the new model of something. But here, the term Jesus uses is kainos, which has this sense of being new in sense to quality. Like anything that existed before this, is inferior to what this qualitatively better thing is. It's a superior command. This command to love is rooted in a superior example in Jesus. And we'll learn it flows out of a previously inaccessible source. 
So it's an enriched command to love. But church family, I understand that the word love can feel like a whole lot of different things. And, and let's be clear, when Jesus says love, I don't believe he just means that we should get along and hug each other a lot and sing kumbaya for hours at a time. This fuzzy sense of love isn't all that Jesus has in mind. So there's a, a couple of helpful ways to maybe enable us to think robustly about what it means to love. Here's a couple thoughts. One way to define it uh, I found helpful, and I didn't think I could do better then, so I'm going to quote Paul Tripp here. He says this, that love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. It does not require reciprocation or the person who's being loved being deserving. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that doesn't require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. I think that's a healthy way to think about what love really is. It's a self-sacrifice for the good of another person. Our love isn't fuzzy. It's ferocious in that sense. It's tough. It's strong. It's bold. Paul takes a stab at defining love. Some of you made the mistake of having this passage read at your weddings. And if you've been married for a long time, you know it was a mistake to be held to that kind of a standard. And you ought to be held to this kind of standard because it's what God calls us to do. You know it. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, it bears all things, love believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things, it goes on to say, love never ends. That's Paul's definition of love. Rooted in the person of the Godhead, applied to real life. Maybe just to cherry pick a few. Love being patient, man, right? Like, love isn't rushing to meet some deadline. It knows that its own preferred time frame may not be God's time frame for you or another or the situation. It's patient. Love being kind means Man, love reminds its attitude and its face that what it's doing here is a mirror of a God who's so incredibly good. It doesn't do it angrily, right? Like, it's kind. It's awkwardly nice, extravagantly thoughtful. Love doesn't insist on its own way. I've been paid off to not say anything more about that. doesn't insist on its own way. It knows the difference between what God's revealed will is and his word that we can count on and hold each other to and what my own preference is on this other issue. My own preference for the way this ought to happen. And self-sacrifice is for the good of the other. It's caring about God's glory, not my own pleasure. Love rejoices with the truth. Allows God to define what's right and behaves accordingly. 
It's Paul's take on love. But our passage gives us a take on love as well. It says, use the example of Jesus. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Jesus tells his disciples in this upper room moment as he's preparing out of love to give himself as a sacrifice for the world that he is the highest supreme expression of love. And isn't that true? That there's no greater worth and yet it's humbled, he's humbled himself to the greatest of depths. That he's the greatest one and yet he's performing the greatest act of service. Because of the greatest love we could ever know. As I have loved you, love one another. And then there's John. Remember sitting right next to Jesus. This moment seared into his consciousness. And when he goes to write his epistles to the churches, in 1 John he writes this. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the example of love. So beloved, he says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see? The way Jesus' words in this moment so shapes John. That's what he wants to talk about. That Jesus is our example of love. And if he's loved us like that, we have to, in response, love others. Love one another. The response of the church to the glory of God, seen especially here in the sacrificial, sacrificial rescue Jesus provides, has to be that we love one another. That's the second thing we see today. The response of the church is commanded to be love. And Jesus finishes by saying, by this By your expression of love for one another, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You have love for one another. Jesus is answering that question. Hey, I'm going away and you can't follow. And you might wonder how you're supposed to be followers once I'm not here to follow. And I'm telling you, this is how others will know you're my followers. When you love one another. In fact, in a sense, Jesus is saying, it's better that I'm not here with you for you to physically follow me. It's better that you love one another. That's my sovereign will. Can we sit with that for a second, Bethel HP? Jesus in his sovereign will decided it's better for him to not come to church physically with us today. It's better that you and I love each other instead in the meantime. By this all will know you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, the result of our love is the proclamation of our faith. That's the third truth. The result of our love is the proclamation of our faith. I think that breaks down in two ways. Our relationship with God is seen by the world. When we love others, like Jesus loved us, his love just lived out in us. Because love in action... Man, that tells a story that can't be argued with. It's so powerful. 
the display of a love for each other. That self-sacrificial, that only makes sense in the context of the reality of a God who is our first lover. And these disciples, in the church they led, they loved like this. They loved like this. Do you remember? I'll read from Acts chapter 4. A group of believers, they were united and their hearts and their spirit, and all those in the group acted through their, as though their private property belonged to everyone else in the group. In fact, they shared everything. And with great power, the apostles were telling the people that the Lord Jesus was truly raised from the dead, and God blessed all the believers very much, and there was no needy people among them. And from time to time, those who owned fields or houses sold them and brought the money and gave it all to the apostles, and the money was given to anyone who needed it. I mean, they had radical love for each other on display. And it turned their world upside down. Shaped their era in a few hundred years unlike anything that had ever happened before. Bethel HP. Do you want to make the world wonder again? Let's make the world marvel. And we don't need anyone's permission. And we don't need anything in our control other than to love each other. We're ready to go. And I love the way our church has done that. There's such a track record here of that. Even thinking about, in a similar vein, the financial gifts of the church. I think of the way this last spring as Russia invaded Ukraine. We raised over $70,000 for the churches of Ukraine. I think about just last month when together we raised over $118,000 for this City Life Center in Gary. Like, this is radical love on display. And we're hoping people who are blessed by these gifts and see our love and display in a plethora of other ways go, wait, what did you do and why did you do that? So that we have a chance to say, it's because Jesus loved us. And it drives everything that we do. Like John was seared to the core by this upper room moment. We've been changed for forever because of what Jesus did. To that end, you might remember, I shared a few months ago that we were beginning a new kind of small-scale Simple reminders that we're called to live on mission and loving each other is a way to live on mission. And every month, we're going to remind our church family, give you an idea, something you might be able to do to live on mission. And out of this sermon, maybe that mission ought to be love each other radically this month. I think we officially decided it ought to be host some sort of party in your neighborhood. Host a neighborhood event or gathering so you can get to know your neighbors. Do that too. But I'm, I'm working on the fly here. Love each other radically this month. Showcase love to people in your neighborhood radically this month. And then tell them it's because you've been radically loved by a king who died for you. Put Jesus on display through your love. And there's another result of our love. It's a pro proclamation of our faith to ourselves. Our relationship with God is assured to ourselves as we love others. Using scripture to interpret scripture, using John who is in this upper room to interpret what Jesus was communicating here, notice what John says throughout his first epistle. He says in 1 John 3, we know that we've passed from death into life. We know that we're truly 
born again, that we are Christians because, what's he say? We love the brothers. He says in chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So you're a believer. And everyone who loves the Father, what's he say? Loves whoever has been born of him. Loves the other family members. Loves one another. John says there's this inseparable link. If you're a believer, you love other people. And his general summary was this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. As we love others, we are assured ourselves that God truly has brought us from death and into life. So the culture of our lives, the direction of our lives, we ought to see that it's increasingly one of love for those in our life, for those in the church. Do you see that fruit in your life? Do you see a genuine love for anyone who believes in Jesus? As different as they may be to you in other ways, Knowing that, is that enough for you to cherish and love and sacrificially be a part of their life? And maybe let's not draw the circle too wide at first. What about the family God has given you right here, right now? Husbands, your wives, and wives, your husbands, and children, your parents. Do we love there even? Following the example Jesus set of love. That sounds like an impossible task, doesn't it? Jesus set a high standard. How do we have assurance if that's the bar? Many even recently, it was two days ago, in my family, there was contention. Can you believe that? There was a fight over a toy, and it wasn't even a toy. It was a piece of cardboard that had been cut out of a cereal box. Right? Like, how are we fighting over this, people? We were fighting over it, and being, you know, a loving father and a pastor, of course, I had this godly wisdom that changed the situation. No, I did actually. My advice was good. It just, I'm still human, right? They're still humans. And I was like, hey, guys, Jesus loved us so much, right? Look how I'm applying what I'm learning here, right? Like, Jesus loved us so much. Don't you think we can be kind and share that? You know what the response was? Man, is it so true of my heart, and maybe yours too. The response was, okay, but just one time. <laughs> just one time. Is that what our hearts say to us when we're called to sacrificially love? <laughs> How can we imitate the love of Jesus when we're so often so far from it ourselves? You know, we're called not simply to copy the love of Jesus as if we could, but to love out of who we newly have been made to be in the love of Jesus. Using John again as a commentary on his own writings, he says, this isn't a new commandment, but it is a new commandment. He says in 1 John chapter 2, it's a new commandment I'm writing to you, which is true in Jesus, and it's true in you. 
because the darkness is passing away, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. That's what makes this new. That's what makes this call to love. What we're able to do now, the darkness is passing away. The light is already shining. And so whoever says he's in the light but hates his brother, he's still in darkness. And whoever loves his brother does it because he's abiding in the light. And in him there's no cause for stumbling. John th thinks... John writes to the first and earliest churches that we can follow Jesus' new, supremely elevated call to love one another sacrificially, chiefly because Jesus has come as our rescuer. New light has already dawned and is here. You're not just doing things that are light-ish. You have the light. You are in the light. Jesus will use an example in just a few verses in chapter 15 of a branch that's connected and abiding in a vine. In Christ, we can love. That's how John sees us obeying this command. He sees it not as a law to live up to, but a new reality that is alive inside of us. That the glory of Jesus in redemption is not only our example, it's also our source to be Christians and to love. God's glory is so great in our salvation that it unleashes in us a ferocious love that testifies to our hearts and to our world that Jesus is the risen Savior. Now is the man, the Son of Man glorified. So just as I have loved you, we should love one another. What's it tell us about a God who is most glorious, specifically at where he dies in our place for our sins? It tells us he's good. It tells us that he's not just a God who can create our universe. He's the God who we want to be the God of our universe. That of course, his call sign would be love. Of course, the way anyone can know about him is by seeing love. Of course, the way we can know we've been changed by him is that we see love alive and at work and flowing out of us. Yes, this passage must drive us to a radical love for one another. But Jesus doesn't ask his followers to do what he isn't also going to remake them and empower them to do. So church family today, I'm not going to ask you to love one another. Because I know that you will love one another in outlandish ways if you see and hear God's word whispering to you today and shouting in this upper room to see the glory of Jesus, the Son of Man, to see how he glorifies God the Father by his servant-hearted love, to see how the Godhead is radiant in this plan that's been set in motion. And when you see that God didn't just create what would be a catastrophe and said he was going to redeem it because he was love, and he was preparing to atone it, because he was just, and he was going to deliver all who would trust in him because he was faithful. If you see him, love remakes you into love. If you are made alive to see the glory of God, Christian, you are remade to love like he loves. So see him and then live like you've been remade.